The information contained in this podcast is for general information purposes and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. This is In The Know, a monthly investment podcast brought to you by Magellan Asset Management, experts in global investing. We bring you timely, unique and thought-provoking insights to help you make sense of today's investment landscape. I'd suggest that the energy transition will almost invariably be the most influential investment thematic of the next 30 years. John Kerry, the US Special Envoy on Climate and of course former presidential candidate, has described the energy transition as the greatest economic opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. Now that's a pretty extraordinary statement, but I don't think it's an exaggeration. The energy transition will fundamentally transform almost every sector of our economy. That's David Costello, a portfolio manager here at Magellan Asset Management, talking about the huge impact a change in energy markets will have over coming decades. Welcome to Magellan In The Know. In this episode, David Costello joins Magellan's Head of Macro and Portfolio Manager, Arvid Strymon, to look at the current energy crisis, its causes, and how it will inevitably force a more rapid transition to renewable energy sources. They speak with key account manager Emma Cook about how businesses and investors will benefit from something they say is more than a megatrend. But first, a warm welcome from Emma Cook. Welcome to our podcast, Magellan in the Know. I'm Emma Cook, a key account manager here at Magellan, and today I'm joined by Magellan's head of macro and portfolio manager of the global strategy, Arvid Strymon, and David Costello, a portfolio manager in the Magellan infrastructure team. Thanks to you both for making the time today. Great to be here, Emma. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Great to be here. In last month's podcast, we heard from the executive chairman of WEC Energy, one of America's largest power generation and gas distribution firms. And he spoke about how they're dealing with the green energy revolution and ensuring affordable, reliable and clean energy to their 4.6 million customer base. Following on from the resounding interest that came from this podcast and the topical issue that is obviously energy reliability and affordability, we thought we'd continue the conversation around energy today. The global disruptions obviously being felt widely now as nations attempt to guide towards net zero targets and grapple with the immediacy of soaring energy prices. And I think Gail Clapper summarised it really well when he said, energy is at the intersection of a functioning economy, public policy and technological change. We obviously all need it. We're heavily reliant on public policy to help manage and incentivize its supply and reliability. And if we're truly to ensure its reliability and transition from carbon intensive resources, we need to quickly embrace newer, cleaner and renewable forms of its supply. This movement's obviously been building for years and seems to have been spurred on in particular over the past few years with COVID impacting energy demand and supply and then the actual supply of energy being threatened by war, obviously in Russia and other geopolitical tensions. Energy prices have skyrocketed, contributing to the inflationary pressures most of us can now relate to. It really looks to be a long, cold winter ahead for Europe but what is the impact on longer time horizons? And importantly for investors, what are the considerations as they navigate the consequences of all of this? So Arvid, 
perhaps you can begin by walking us through what this energy crisis is all about and how did we end up here? Sure thing, Emma. And um, when I think about things like this, I always take it back to the basics and think about supply and demand. So this is really an economics 101. And maybe if we take Europe as an example here, it really is the epicentre of this energy crisis. I think really what's happened here is a negative supply shock in the energy market. And it's happened on a few different vectors. And the first I would say is in natural gas, or let's just call it gas, Nord Stream 1, which is a big pipeline which uh, was flowing from Russia to Europe. That was first closed for maintenance and then the um, flows were stopped by the Russians and then most recently that pipeline was actually sabotaged. So I think that Russia has been weaponizing its energy, but I'm not sure who did that sabotage. But still on the gas, um, there's actually another pipeline called Nord Stream 2. That wasn't actually working because it hadn't actually been commissioned or finalised, uh, but that was also sabotaged. So when people are thinking about gas um, supplies into Europe, that was not as rosy a picture as it has been before. But it's not just gas, and I think this is important. Hydropower generation um, has also been impacted. There's a big drought in Europe, and that's reducing river flows. In the nuclear space, there's a lot of plants, nuclear power plants in Europe. Many of the French plants are actually offline, overdue maintenance, some corrosion issues apparently. I'm not sure how you get overdue maintenance on a nuclear power plant, but um, I'm glad they're doing it. And some of these plants um, were on lower power. They actually use a lot of water and um, they heat up the rivers. So if there's less water, they can't heat up the rivers too much downstream because of environmental impacts. And then, of course, there was oil. Uh, OPEC Plus reduced its oil supply by around 2 million barrels a day, which of course is weighing on that US-Saudi relationship. But the bigger picture here is that total supply has fallen of energy into Europe. And, and this was happening at the time when a energy transition is going on. And here I would say that there's a change in the composition of that European energy supply and it's predominantly a shift away from high carbon sources of energy. But I would say that there's also some shift away from nuclear post uh, what happened in Japan in the Fukushima nuclear power plant. So there's a negative supply shock, at the same time demand's been holding up. And we all know that global economies are pretty strong after COVID. And we've seen governments try to get that supply and demand balance into a more normal position with energy rationing and, and that sort of stuff. And so I think that's what's happening with the crisis. Prices have gone up a lot. What I would say is that prices would be a lot higher and this energy crisis would be a lot worse in Europe if gas storage, and here I'm talking about natural gas, if gas storage wasn't um, as high as it is, it's around 80% or so, which is around about a normal level coming into winter. So lucky them, they managed to stock those gas storage facilities. Now, what's happening to Europe is having a global impact because, as you'd imagine, these power companies in Europe, they're scrambling for oil, they're scrambling for gas, they're scrambling for coal, and that's pushing up energy prices around the world. And this is increasing investment risk. Obviously, it's pushing up prices, but and we all know we are in a high inflation environment already. We also know that voters don't like it when prices go up, particularly for energy, and um, governments are trying to shield or at least compensate their voters or citizens, and um, they're doing that to obviously keep their jobs and stay in government. So when I look at this, I see rising political risk, rising geopolitical risk, and that's uh, going hand in hand with what I think is already elevated interest rate and economic risk. Yeah, it's shocking. The uh, price increases with oil up 
460% from its trough in uh, April 2020 from $19 to $105 earlier this year. Natural gas up 490% over that same period in time. I think what's interesting is that we knew coal was going to meet its demise, but it seems like the pace of the need to transition has still caught some by surprise. Yeah, so when I think about the energy transition, I'll give my macro view here. This is very much a 40,000-foot view. Dave's a a real expert on this stuff at the industry and the company level, so I'm interested in his thoughts as well. But when I think about energy transitions, I would say, going back on time, there's been many energy transitions. And very broadly, and, and this doesn't include all of them, but I would say very broadly, there was a transition from wood to coal, and then there was a transition from coal to oil, and maybe now we're going from a transition from oil to renewables. And I think what we have to understand is why do these transitions occur? What's the fundamental reason why they occur? And and I think the answer here is that they do increase productivity. Okay, so we do get a standard of living benefit from doing this. And that keeps people happy. Okay, so that's that's really important. And because keeping people happy is what politicians and governments are generally trying to do, they support these energy transitions. And that's really important because sometimes a tra- energy transition needs the support of government to get the ball rolling, okay? And to understand what drives the government, I think you have to understand what is the main role of a government. And I would argue that the main role of a government is to provide national security. And that is more or less keeping people safe from external threats. Now, if your country's under threat, then you're not so worried about your job or your next holiday or something like that. Now, in Australia, we've been very lucky, partly because of our location right at the bottom of the world, but um, we tend to take this national security risk for granted because of that. Now, people in Ukraine, I think that they're not taking that for granted, and I think the other people in Europe have certainly noticed, and you've seen an increase in defence spending, and you've also seen applications to NATO in Northern Europe. Now, national security, which I would argue is the main role of government, that doesn't just provide physical safety, and this is important, because it also means that there's less threat to the economy because people aren't distracting from doing their normal day jobs. And so let's just say that national security also contributes to something called economic security. And economic security not only means that governments have the money to pay for national security, but it also means they've got the money to pay for things like social programs. And these social programs are really important for things like reducing profit and also providing things like healthcare services. And so I guess the point is that governments are looking at the risks to both national security and economic security. And the energy transition, from my macro perspective, is dealing with, I would say, two risks. And the first is the environmental risk. And I think it's fairly obvious that global warming and changing weather patterns is going to have an economic impact that's permanent to the extent that these things are permanent changes to weather patterns. And I guess in other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that climate change is threatening economic security. And as I just said, this then threatens national security. So for instance, if you want to think about it this way, if a government has to keep rebuilding bridges after a flooding, there's going to be less commerce because there's less trucks going over those bridges. And that means less taxes to the government and less money to spend for the government on social programs and defence. So I think the energy transition, to the extent that it's changing the pace of global warming, then it's dealing with those threats to national security and economic security. And how about energy security? As you know, energy is so important to the economic outlook. And if you're reliant on another country 
for your energy needs, then that's obviously not ideal. And having that external reliance is never as good as having your own supply, even if that country that you're relying on is a friend or ally. And, and this is exactly what the Europeans are finding out right now. They were reliant on cheap Russian gas, not only the households to heat the houses, but also the uh, manufacturers for their um, energy requirements. And so Europe will transition away from cheap Russian gas because that is a threat to their economic security and therefore it's a threat to their national security at the same time that national security risks have risen in Europe because of what Russia's doing. And by the way, I would say that energy security that you mentioned, Emma, has been an issue for many years. I'd say it's one of the main reasons that the US has had a very large presence in the Middle East for so long, is to make sure that they do have energy security. And so in addition to the environmental issue that I just talked about, I think you're right, there is an energy security reason to transition away from oil and gas from the Middle East. So does this mean we have Putin to thank for motivating the energy transition process or is him sending the Europeans back to their coal-fired power stations delaying this transition in energy sources? Dave, perhaps? Yeah, certainly Putin's actions have caused something of a setback to the energy transition in the short term. The withdrawal of Russian gas supplies have meant that the Europeans have had to burn more coal in the short term, and that's been accentuated by the coincidence of a period of severe drought that's impacted hydro production and a season of relatively low wind speeds that have impacted offshore and onshore wind production. But notwithstanding that short-term setback, we think that Putin's actions might actually be the catalyst for the world to realise the potential of the energy transition. Shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we saw the European Commission release their Repower EU raft of policy proposals, for instance. And those measures are really aimed to weaning the continent off Russian fossil fuels by 2030 and securing European energy security. And amongst the proposals that that plan advances are a plan, for instance, to increase EU's binding energy efficiency target from 9% to 13% over the next decade, to double the level of solar PV generating capacity by 2025 and increase it nearly fourfold by 2030, and to take the existing target for 10 million tonnes per annum of renewable hydrogen production by 2030 and supplement that with a further 10 million tonnes per annum of imported clean hydrogen production. But perhaps most significantly, the European Commission and member states, it's prompted them to address permitting of renewable energy. And this has been the most significant impediment to the rollout of renewables across Europe for the last decade. So while European member states are dealing with the complexities of securing energy security and affordability at the moment, to the extent that they finally address this permitting problem, we could really see accelerating progress from here. Magellan always likes to find tailwinds of growth, and obviously we like to invest in these tailwinds. Would you call the energy transition a tailwind or, or be so bold as to even call it a megatrend? Emma, I'd go much further. I'd suggest that the energy transition will almost invariably be the most influential investment thematic of the next 30 years. John Kerry, the US Special Envoy on Climate and, of course, former presidential candidate, has described the energy transition as the greatest economic opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary statement, but I don't think it's an exaggeration. 
the energy transition will fundamentally transform almost every sector of our economy. And I'd suggest it will present thoughtful investors with an opportunity to compound highly attractive rates of return over a multi-decade horizon. It sounds like a great opportunity. Will it be a headwind for some though? Undoubtedly, just as lots of money will be made by thoughtful investors who leverage themselves to this thematic, it will present a trove of risks. Most prominently, perhaps, there will be legacy fossil fueled infrastructure and resources that are likely to be stranded. So IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, estimates that those costs could amount to somewhere in the region of 12 to $20 trillion, depending upon how swiftly the world acts on policy in this area. But there are other risks for investors to navigate. Some of the companies that will be leveraged this thematic sell highly commoditized products, polysilicon modules that go into solar panels, for instance. Now, those companies tend not to be high quality, and so while they might grow significantly, they might not generate a lot of earnings. And finally, we'd note that some of the technologies in this area are quite speculative in nature because the markets are so nascent. So again, while there might be meaningful market growth, it's not clear that some of these companies will benefit their shareholders. So I guess that brings us to think about the costs uh, associated with this um, transitioning uh, piece. How will consumers bear the costs? And, And even more importantly, is there a cost to not transitioning? Yeah, certainly. So there's a few strands to pull on there. With regards to the cost, the headline estimates are staggering. So IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, estimates that the cost to achieve a net zero economy globally by 2050 is somewhere in the region of 115 trillion US dollars. So to put that number in context, that's around maybe slightly ahead of global GDP last year. Now, for context, the world spent around 1.2 trillion US dollars on energy transition related investments last year or about 1% of global GDP. So to achieve net zero by 2050, given that total investment requirement of about $115 trillion, we need to get to about $3 trillion per year of investment by 2030 and increase investment to $4 trillion per year, nearly three and a half times the current level of investment by 2050. So it's an extraordinary level and acceleration of investment that's required. Wow, that's a staggering sum. So how will consumers bear these costs? It's counterintuitive, but the analysis from the economists at the International Energy Agency projects that total direct spending on energy by consumers will actually fall as a share of disposable income over the period to 2050, from about 8% today to approximately 6% in 2050. So for consumers in advanced economies, that implies an energy bill that goes from about 2800 US dollars today to a total bill of around $2,300 in 2030. Now, those savings reflect the inherent energy efficiency improvements of an electrified economy. So if you take electric vehicles, for instance, they're around three times as energy efficient as an internal combustion engine vehicle. So about 60% of the power from the grid gets converted to power at the wheels of an electric vehicle. By contrast, in an internal combustion engine, only about 20% of the fuel energy goes to the power at the wheels. Yeah, can I just add another thing here is we're talking about how much consumers are going to pay here and we're 
discussing whether it's more than before or less than before. I would say there's also a, a cost which households and citizens didn't see before, which was, you know, all of those American warships and soldiers that were in the Middle East, um, you know, they weren't free. So to the extent that America doesn't have to do that as much, then that's less money that US consumers ultimately have to pay for, let's call it energy security. And so what do you think will be the cost of not transitioning? Would that be significant too? Yeah, it certainly will, Emma. Under current policy settings, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change thinks that median global warming will reach approximately 2.4 to 3.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. And climate scientists warn that such an outcome would yield increasingly severe droughts. It would render parts of the equatorial world uninhabitable by virtue of wet bulb temperatures that are incompatible with human life at high temperatures and sea level rises that could displace millions. And that world starts to get like a pretty dark looking place. It resembles in some respects what the philosopher Thomas Hobbes described as the state of nature where life's nasty, brutish and short with economists predicting that crop failures in major population centres would undermine food security and and create conflicts over those resources. Wow, that's a world we don't want to have to imagine. Very much. Arvid, just uh, back on, you mentioned the military spending that has occurred for countries trying to protect the supply of energy to them. How do you think a shift in energy sources changes the geopolitical clout of economies who've essentially had the upper hand with big fossil fuel reserves? Well, as you'd imagine, it's um, it's not so good for them. And um, I guess using the, the framework I was mentioning earlier, their economic security of those fossil fuel exporting countries is being reduced, okay, because they're getting less money in the door essentially. And, and that, that means that their national security is also becoming tougher. For instance, uh, they won't have as much money to spend on their defence budget. Now, at the same time, their social programs won't be getting as much money, which ultimately means that their people or citizens will not be as happy. And that means that their political risk rises domestically. And in other words, citizens may decide that they want someone else running the country. Now, if there is a change in government or maybe even a revolution, then the new leaders will decide what they are going to change. And they may decide that there's some countries that they don't want to trade with anymore. And so I guess this energy transition doesn't just affect the fossil fuel exporting countries. It can also affect the countries which trade with them before or after that event. Now, among the myriad of risks that businesses have to deal with, be that geopolitical, as you've just mentioned, uh, regulation, inflation, cyber risk, it, it seems that energy and its reliability and its cost, as well as the policies that are driving carbon emission reductions, that surely becomes a key risk for many businesses. And I, I wondered if you could talk about how we think about this in the context of our investee companies and when we're trying to evaluate their investment thesis. Yeah, sure thing. I think you're absolutely right that this is a, a key risk. And um, let me just break it down. You mentioned two things, energy volatility and the energy transition. And, and on energy volatility, we're structurally underexposed to commodity price volatility. We don't invest in energy companies. And that's because we don't think these companies have what we would call strong pricing power. And that's important to us because for us, that's an important indicator of business quality. And um, if we take the example of oil, I'd say it's OPEC, um, not the energy companies which have the pricing power. 
But on the energy transition piece, this is something that we, and I suspect Dave especially, has been thinking about for a long time. And as I explained earlier, there's many reasons that are driving this transition. And, and I think that we'd like to be on the right side of a megatrend. And Dave was talking about that this maybe isn't more than a megatrend. And I'd like to say to people that it's always easier to swim with the current than against it. And if Dave's right, then this is more than a megatrend. Maybe what I should be saying is that it's um, almost impossible to swim up a waterfall. Anyway, um, (laughs) for instance, like we look at the companies that are on the right side of this megatrend or on the wrong side of the megatrend. And I think Europe's an easy place to find uh, companies that are on the wrong side. The manufacturers who relied on cheap Russian gas are obviously having a tough time right now. And I'd say there's going to be a time when they get their energy supply costs back to where Russia was, um, maybe even cheaper with renewables. But in the meantime, it's pretty tough for them and it's introduced a level of uncertainty. And of course, whether you invest in that company, of course, depends on its price. Another thing I'd say here is that economies are slowing and we often say that companies that maintain their investment programs through a, say, an economic downturn, they often come out the other side in a much stronger competitive position. And and that's because, for instance, they've got better factories when demand starts picking up against. Maybe they've invested in machinery when when other people didn't. Um, So that means that um, they can crank those machines a lot better at a lower cost once, once they need to. And maybe they've also invested in their customer relationships, um, things like sales and marketing. And so their customer relationships have, have not fallen during that period of a, of a downturn. And, and this is important because many companies right now, they might want to reduce their investment in, let's call it carbon reduction programs as the economy slows. And I think that that would be the wrong thing to do over the medium to longer term, especially if consumers right now are placing an even higher or greater emphasis on carbon reduction. And there is some evidence that um, consumers have actually begun reacting this way to the energy crisis and the higher prices which they're seeing there. Now, of course, what poses a risk for some also tends to represent an opportunity somewhere. So let's discuss the businesses that are set to benefit from this energy transition. David, you you mentioned the comment made by John Kerry, I think, that this could be the greatest economic opportunity since the Industrial Revolution. So can you talk us through what, what is this opportunity to invest in the energy transition? Certainly. In the Infrastructure Fund, we've been excited by the opportunity that the energy transition presents our regulated electric utilities for some time. And we'd point out that we expect the energy transition to sustain high rates of investment and attractive rates of growth for our regulated electric utilities for the next 30 years. And importantly, under the regulatory construct, every dollar that these companies invest in augmenting their networks, in connecting new renewables, or in building new renewable generating plants, earns the authorised rate of return. So that enormous need for investment catalyzed by the energy transition creates an enormous opportunity for investors. And when we think about this opportunity, our conviction that it will be realised reflects the critical role that our electric utilities play in unlocking the path to a net zero economy. You know, when you consider the world's plans to get to net zero, two elements invariably assume central importance. Firstly, policymakers recognise the need to replace carbon-intensive thermal generation, principally gas and coal, with renewable or sustainable sources of generation. That will predominantly be wind and solar, supported by things like nuclear, hydropower, in the future, perhaps green hydrogen. But then secondly, policymakers seek to leverage that clean power, electrifying as much of the economy as possible 
to drive emissions out of the broader ecosystem. Now, of course, that's something of a simplification. There'll be parts of the economy that prove difficult to electrify, whether it's heavy-duty transportation, maybe parts of heavy industry. But even there, the most promising solution appears to be green hydrogen, produced by splitting water molecules in electrolyzers powered with clean energy. So again, our electric utilities provide the answer ultimately. So it really is the case that the world's plans to decarbonize hang on the investments being undertaken by our electric utilities. These businesses really are the cornerstone on which the energy transition will be built. And are the utilities already investing in the energy transition? Absolutely, Emma. They have been for some time. And when you consider what the electric utilities have already achieved through their investments in replacing thermal generation with renewables, in connecting new renewables, many of these businesses have already been able to reduce their emissions by somewhere in the region of 40 to 50% since the turn of the century. And almost invariably, they have ambitious plans to achieve net zero emissions by 2050 or even earlier. Those plans are supporting billions of dollars of investment that are driving the earnings growth of these businesses. And almost universally, our electric utilities are guiding to earnings growth in the region of 5 to 7 or perhaps 6 to 8% per annum. Now, these businesses typically offer dividend yields in the region of 2 to 3%. So you're looking at a total prospective shareholder return of somewhere in the region of 7 to 10%. Now, we'd acknowledge these are hardly venture capital-style returns. But when you compound 7 to 10% for 30 years, as we're confident investors can here, you really get the snowball rolling. Okay, so how about in opportunities beyond the infrastructure sector? Yeah, Emma, we expect the energy transition to present thoughtful investors with the opportunity to compound attractive risk-adjusted investment returns over a multi-decade horizon. And two key inferences really underpin our thesis for the energy transition. The first is that the energy transition will confer businesses with positive environmental impact, sustained growth at a multiple of global GDP. And then secondly, and this point might be underappreciated, but a thematic exposure to the energy transition, we believe, mitigates prominent business and market risks. So what are the growth opportunities that you see? Can you perhaps give us a few examples? Yeah, of course. We expect that the energy transition will seed vast new markets and accelerate growth through established products with positive environmental impact. So if we take some of the more nascent markets that will be accelerated by the energy transition, we'd note that annual electric vehicle sales are expected to increase by a factor of 21 times between now and 2050, supporting a compound annual growth rate of 11% per annum for the next 30 years. Over the next five years, that growth rate looks more like 30% per annum. If we take battery storage capacity, it's expected to increase by more than 170 times between 2021 and 2050 in a net zero scenario, implying an annualised growth rate of almost 19% per annum. Public EV charging capacity is expected to increase by more than 250 times between now and 2050. That gives you an annualised growth rate of more than 20%. And of course, clean hydrogen production, which is almost non-existent today, it's expected to increase by more than 700 times between now and 2050, implying a sustained growth rate of almost 25% over the next 30 years. Now, of course, those examples represent more nascent markets, but there'll be established markets that benefit too. So if we take electric substation, you know, components that are made by established 
champion companies like ABB or Siemens, that market's expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 5.5% to 2050. And we'd point out that our extensive reliance on fossil fuels means that investment opportunities will pervade the entire global economy. You know, securing system resilience and energy affordability in a deeply electrified economy that's highly reliant on variable renewable energy will require technology solutions. That's going to create opportunities for companies that sell sensors, semiconductors, software, and industrial Internet of Things components. Delivering the vast improvements in energy efficiency required in industry will require new factory automation technologies. And of course, decarbonising our building stock will spur growth for new heating and cooling equipment, for building materials with lower levels of embodied carbon that enhance energy efficiency, and for software that allow architects and engineers to design buildings with optimal energy efficiency characteristics. So as we step back and we think about the opportunities from the energy transition, we really see six vectors of opportunity that correspond with the major sources of the world's carbon emissions today, and they are clean energy, clean transportation, clean buildings, clean industry, clean agriculture and forestry, and a final one, which is really a a catch-all that recognises that we won't be able to abate all of the world's emissions, so there'll be a need for carbon removal and sequestration. So in each of those six areas, we think there'll be extraordinary investment opportunities. Wow, this sounds so optimistic in an environment characterised with a lot of uncertainty at the moment. My interest is how confident you can be of these projections for growth. How confident can you be that this transition is actually going to continue or accelerate at the pace that it's going? Yeah, the realisation of these opportunities is supported by three characteristics. And the first I'd point to is the rapidly improving economics of clean products. So, of course, the levelised cost of electricity of renewables is now by far the cheapest source of energy in most major markets, and that paradigm has only been accentuated by the rising price of thermal energy. Similarly, we're expecting uh, new technologies, things like batteries, to continue to come down the cost curve. Batteries have declined by approximately 90% in cost over the last decade, And the projections are that the cost of green hydrogen, for instance, will decline by 60% over the period to 2030 and by more than 90% over the period to 2050. So that's the first supporting consideration here. The second is what is clearly a growing preference for consumers for clean products, almost independent of product economics. And then finally, the final element that we'd point to sustaining this trend is profound regulatory and fiscal policy tailwinds that see governments underwrite a level of risk relating to things like technology adoption or market penetration. You know, if if there wasn't an imperative to solve environmental concerns, electric vehicle adoption would come down to a matter of consumer preference and relative economics. But when the Californian government imposes a mandate that there will only be electric vehicles sold come 2035 they're inherently bearing that technological adoption and market penetration risk for investors. Well, there aren't many uh, investment opportunities out there where the government underwrite your risk. So that sounds really compelling. So Arvid, where do you think this is all headed in the next year, geopolitically and economy? Where do you see us in the next year or two? Well, that's a, a very good question. I think a lot of it, given that it was driven by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, depends on how that plays out. And 
And I think that Russia's goal when it's been weaponising energy, I think there's actually two goals. The first and more obvious one is I think they're trying to scare European voters into telling their governments to stop supporting Ukraine. I think, as I mentioned, that's the more obvious one. But I think there's another one that's at play here, and that's that I'm sure that Russia would be happy if they made inflation worse, which made people's inflationary expectations in the West higher because remember that these inflation expectations are very much driven by what happens at the petrol pump. And anyway, if those went up, I think the central banks would have to raise interest rates further. And so essentially what I think that Russia may be doing here is saying, well, if you're going to crush our economy and support our military adversaries, then we're going to crush your economy. And I suspect that that's something that will be a big influence over what happens there. And we're obviously watching that very closely. And I think that the energy crisis will continue weighing on the growth outlook while there's that source of uncertainty. One thing that may break that source of uncertainty is a positive supply shock. We've been talking a lot about negative supply shocks and, and of course, these have started to happen. We've seen the Americans starting to talk to the Venezuelans. Um, Venezuela as a country has the largest oil reserves on the face of the planet, um, so that's someone who the Americans would quite like to talk to. But if those talks go somewhere and there is a deal, I would just caution that it takes a little bit of time for that oil to actually come out of the country. The oil infrastructure is not in the best shape. As mentioned earlier, I, I think the geopolitics is getting tougher. This often happens when growth slows and countries at a very basic level, they just start to fight over what growth there is. It's a little bit like the seagulls and the hot chips. And so when you see slower growth, you tend to see geopolitical risk go up. And perhaps finally, David, everyone loves a, a stock tip. So maybe you could give us an example of a company that we don't own that might benefit from this megatrend. Of course, one of the companies we're really excited about in this space is a business called Sensata Technologies. They supply highly engineered mission-critical sensors that precisely measure things like speed, position, pressure or temperature, principally in automotive applications. So things like tyre pressure or braking pressure. And our thesis for that business really reflects the high-quality economic leverage that it provides to the rapid expected growth in sales of electric vehicles. Recall that those sales are expected to increase at more than 30% per annum for the next five years and something like 11% over the next 30 years. Sensata exhibits just exceptional quality characteristics. It generates returns on tangible invested capital of around 20% per annum, you know, approximately twice the company's cost of capital, with operating margins in excess of 20% and a capital-like business model that supports healthy free cash flow generation. And those attractive financial characteristics are a function of the company's durable leadership in a fragmented market for automotive sensors. So the company's products are designed into auto OEM's vehicle platforms over a collaborative multi-year development cycle where the company works very closely with the design engineers at companies like Ford or General Motors or Volkswagen. And the company's products undergo a extensive multi-year certification and qualification process that means that once they're designed in, they rarely get switched during a product platform lifecycle that might last five, six, seven or eight years. Their products are typically sole sourced and 
their collaboration with customers mean that they've got advanced visibility of those customers' development needs and can anticipate them supporting their longevity. Now, the growth opportunity we see here, as I said, really comes from leverage to electric vehicles. While Sensata's products go into internal combustion engine vehicles today and measure things like tyre and braking pressure, the uplift on electric vehicles in terms of the dollar value of their content is already about 20%. And management expects that their content on electric vehicles will increase to a level double that on internal combustion engine vehicles within five years. So the company expects their electrification revenues, which are only a subset of their business, but an important part, to grow at more than 50% per annum over the next five years. And that's expected to support consistent double-digit growth in earnings. And of course, recall that these businesses earn returns almost twice their cost of capital. So that growth is highly accretive to shareholder wealth and value. Wow, this sounds like a a really compelling investment opportunity and it's a fascinating space that I wish we had time to talk more about. But thanks to you both for offering your time today. Anytime, Emma. Thanks, Emma. Anytime. That was Magellan Key Account Manager Emma Cook speaking there with Portfolio Manager David Costello and Magellan Head of Macro and Portfolio Manager Arvid Strymon. We trust you've enjoyed this episode of Magellan In The Know. Join us in a month's time for the next episode. For more information on upcoming episodes, visit magellangroup.com.au slash podcast, where you can also sign up to receive our regular Investment Insights program. Thanks for listening. 